begin by saying, I think where we are right now, Psalm number 14 out of 15 on this album that we've been sitting with for months now, I think this might be the most challenging because uh, as you see on the screen behind me, the title of this sermon, When Brothers Dwell in Unity, um, boy, if there hasn't been a calendar year that has pushed against the unity of, of the church, uh, the unity of brothers and sisters as they attempt to dwell together on the most localized level, all the way out to the most universal expressions of the church and everything in between. As many of you know, if you've sat with the scriptures, uh, even for just a few minutes and worked your way through the first few chapters, that since the moment sin entered the world, there's never been a time when God's people didn't need a sermon on relational unity. I mean, after all, the, the first sibling story in all of the Bible is a murder story. The story of Cain and Abel, a religious fight over which of the two God loved more, followed by, by much of the same, right? Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, David and his brothers, Judah and Israel, the Corinthian church, and on and on and on we could go throughout the story of scripture, right? And, and then there's church history with her many stories of division and, and dissension. I mean, you don't have to you don't have to put on your reading glasses, so to speak, to see the fractured nature of the church with her many denominations brought about by various factions throughout church history. The number of church splits too vast to count, oftentimes spun in some sort of public relations positive light so that the wounds of relational brokenness are ignored, swept under the rug. Not to mention the many churches that haven't split but are filled with disunity and discord all the same. Add to that the day and age in which you and I live, a day in which privatized Christianity is celebrated, right? A, a rugged spiritual individualism of sorts that, that willingly embraces Jesus but not his church as if that's even plausible. So that I would argue and many scholars and commentators on Psalm 133 would argue that that we've lost the sense of community that, that ancient Israel knew all too well. The individual Psalms and, and imagery within just as stirring and effective now as when originally written, the stuff of devotional dreams, right? But the corporate Psalms and imagery therein growing seemingly more distant with time. In a in a quasi-humorous, not really statement that, that reflects a sad reality, Kent Hughes writes, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. In Psalm 133, it's a wisdom psalm that, that celebrates the blessing of unity, the, the goodness and pleasure that the, the Lord delights to pour out on those who live in joyful union with each other. It's a, it's a song that, as I mentioned a moment ago, finds itself near the end of this great album, which began with pilgrim language, going back to, to Psalm 120, the difficult journey to the city of God, moving closer to Zion with each passing song on the album, culminating in this language of arrival, which is what you get very concentrated in the last few of the Psalms of this series. The psalmist having reached his destination, the, the city of Jerusalem, God's chosen city, the, the visible expression of God's presence in the psalmist's day. It's 
Psalm 48, two, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, the place of the house of the Lord, the place of the, the thrones of the house of David, to use that Psalm 122 language from earlier in the series. Very simply put, God's people in God's place, a place of unity and companionship, tethering people together in the worship of the one true God. No longer spread out on the journey, so to speak, but, but rather bound together within the city gates. It's with that picture in mind that the psalmist declares, picking up in verse one of Psalm 133, he says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That language of dwelling in unity, it shows up in the earliest chapters of the Bible along with the many stories of relational strife. So that if you go back to the book of Genesis, you have this description of a geographical region which wasn't conducive to relatives, to brothers living in close proximity. There's also something of a, a parallel in the book of Deuteronomy where it describes extended family living close to one another. For some of you, your greatest nightmare. Certainly it, it gives room Psalm 133 does, for a flesh and blood application, the, the goodness and delightfulness of a unified family, something that, that surely resonates with, with many of us as we move deeper into the holiday season. Right, where there's family unity, the holidays can be a great joy. Where there's family discord, the holidays can be a great misery. But the picture that, that this psalm paints is, is one that captures something more a sibling relationship that, that runs deeper than a shared bloodline. Again, the, the psalmist having reached his destination, the city of Jerusalem, broadening the language of verse one to include the imagery of a covenant family, a, a sort of spiritual togetherness and unified dwelling in the presence of the Lord. We saw something of that last week. If you go back to the lyrics of the previous song, uh, Psalm 132, where the psalmist said in verse seven, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Notice the us and the language of dwelling there. Or Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Right, the picture that the psalmist paints here is one in which dwelling together is something that takes place in the presence of God. It's a spiritual unitedness, so to speak. You see it elsewhere in the Psalms, even broadening beyond the Psalms of Ascent. You go back to Psalm 27, verse four. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Or Psalm 84, verse four. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Talking about a, a dwelling that, that finds its expression of sibling unity in the worship of God as recipients of his redemptive grace, positioned in a sort of togetherness under the waterfall of God's blessing. That's the picture that the psalmist has in mind this morning. A God who delights to, to pour out his goodness and pleasure, verse one, on those who live in joyful, worshipful union with each other. Listen to how he describes that blessing. Going on to verse two, he says, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Here the psalmist 
provides us with the imagery of the Old Testament priesthood, the, the first of two illustrations in this psalm describing the blessing of the Lord. The ordination here of, of Aaron and his descendants, the pouring out of anointing oil in the consecration of the priests, setting them apart as holy. You can read about that whole process in Exodus chapters 29 and 30. The anointing oil was a, a fragrant oil made of cinnamon and sweet cane. Maybe it was a Christmas oil, I don't know. Uh, representing, we know, the blessing and presence of God's spirit. Did you see in divine commissionings in the Old Testament, David's, for example, 1 Samuel 16, 13, we're told then Samuel took the horn of oil, the anointing oil, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. If the anointing oil representing the presence of the spirit of God, keep that in mind. We know that the priesthood was the institution by which the Lord assured his people of forgiveness and blessing drawing his covenant people together into his presence as the priest would act as a mediator of God's blessing to those in the covenant community. We talked a lot about that in our study of the book of Hebrews. If you weren't around, you can go back and check that out and get, get a huge dousing of the imagery of the priesthood and Jesus's fulfillment of that. What the psalmist is, is declaring here is that the blessing of God for those who dwell in unity could no more be contained or confined than the anointing oil could stop from running down the priest's head to his beard and robe. That's what unity in the Lord is like, says the psalmist. God's fragrant grace flowing down like the anointing oil of the priesthood with its cinnamon, cassia, and sweet cane, a fragrance that the world cannot ignore. You gotta wonder if Paul had that kind of imagery in mind, perhaps sitting with Psalm 133 as he wrote the words of 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16, where he says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. We're talking about the fragrance of grace and truth. The fragrance of God's power made perfect in weakness. The fragrance of God's sufficient grace in suffering and hardship. The fragrance of unity. Coming back to Psalm 133. A set apart togetherness as a priesthood of believers living in the gladness of covenant unity. That's what the church is meant to be. If only we more often looked into the eyes, I would argue, of our brothers and sisters in Christ with eyes of our own to see them as members of the holy priesthood established in Jesus, to use that 1 Peter 2 language. Jesus himself, our great high priest in whom we can be assured of God's forgiveness and blessing, through whom we can know God's anointing like David, the blessing and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you're not a Christian, that's the takeaway, that you would come to Jesus, that you would fall at his feet and cry out to him for rescue from your sins and declare him a worthy priest and king, ruling and reigning in your life interceding for you as a mediator between you and the Father. As if, as if the imagery of verse two weren't enough, right? The psalmist could just stop there and we, would, we should all be compelled to fight for unity, right? But, but no, he, he keeps going. Verse three, he says, 
It, this blessing of God, is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Mount Hermon is a, is a mountain covered in snow that, that sits roughly 100 miles to the north of Zion. It's the highest mountain in Israel. Here the psalmist provides us with a, a second illustration describing this blessing of, of the Lord. Here you have this picture of the clouds gathering the dew of Mount Hermon and dropping it on the, the uh, mountains of Zion. Dew signifying freshness, the renewal of the morning, critical to the flourishing of the land, that green things might grow up out of the ground. It's the kind of language that, that we see in the Old Testament in Isaac's blessing of Jacob, for instance, where Isaac says, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. It goes on to say in Deuteronomy 33, 28, so, so Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens dropped down dew. Or elsewhere in scripture, the book of Hosea uses language like this. God says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. You gotta love the imagery there, right? It's a, it's a beauty, it's a flourishing. It's a, it's a rootedness and stability. It's what the dew of heaven does. And the psalmist here in Psalm 133 says, that too is what unity in the Lord is like. God's grace falling down like the dew of heaven, indiscriminate, falling on the high mountain and the low mountain, the tallest of mountains in the rural north, Mount Hermon, and the smallest of mountains in the urban south, Mount Zion, brought together in the imagery of Psalm 133, positioned in, the, in that togetherness under the waterfall of, of God's blessing, bringing forth a, a harvest of goodness and, and joy, a harvest of fruitfulness and flourishing that again, the world cannot ignore when she looks in on the church. For there, verse three, the psalmist says, the Lord has commanded the blessing. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, God's people in God's place under God's rule in unity and companionship expecting him to daily renew, anticipating that work, like the dew that falls from the morning sky. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on this psalm, he says, the oil flowing down Aaron's beard communicates warm priestly relationship. The dew descending down Hermon's slopes communicates fresh and expectant newness. Oil and dew the two things, he says, that make life together delightful. Life to the full, life abundant, what God intended the church to be. Life forevermore, verse three. Hearkening back to the end of Psalm 132, that future language, right? The blessings to come in the heavenly Zion, the stability of a forever king in a forever kingdom of perfect justice and equity the eternal home of myriads of angels, the eternal home of God's redeemed, the, the resting place of his forever presence, a place where the saints will forever dance and shout for joy, undignified like David, a place where all shall receive justice in a land that will forever prosper, a place where God's enemies will know no triumph, 
cast out and forever clothed in shame so that God's people might know eternal peace, a place where the heavenly crown will forever shine as it adorns the head of heaven's king, a place where, to use the language of Psalm 133, this morning's psalm, a place where dissension and discord, factions and fractures shall be no more, praise God, and unity will forever be the song of our hearts. I don't know about you, but when I read Psalm 133, I wanna taste of that right now. I want some of that now. I don't wanna wait for the consummated version of it because we know that Jesus has inaugurated that in his first coming. In one sense, this Psalm shows us something of our desperation, does it not? As it speaks not just once, but but three different times of the blessing descending, the oil running down, the dew falling, that the Israelites went up, 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 singing songs of ascent, trusting the blessing would come down, down, down from heaven's throne. In that sense, this Psalm reminds us of the truth of, of Psalm 123, that if the master doesn't provide, the servant goes without. In the words of one commentator, True unity, like all good gifts, is from above, bestowed rather than contrived, a blessing far more than an achievement. That, that we come together like the pilgrim people of old, ascending into the presence of God in unity as his new covenant people, desperate for him to move, pleading with him to do so, and God sends the blessing down, the oil and dew of a unified flourishing in Christ if we will receive it by his grace. Alec Motyer, in his commentary, says, here's a gem of a psalm, beautiful in expression, clear in thought and structure, attractive in promise, practical and achievable in the vision it presents, and above all, important, even challenging in its truth. The, the reality is this psalm invites us to, to stop kicking against the goads of God's blessing in refusing to dwell together in unity, if that's where we are. It invites us to wrestle with the question, where might God be calling me to repent of unresolved dissension, relational discord within the church, within this church? With whom might God be calling me to pursue unity for the sake of the gospel? What does that look like for you these days, particularly in the, in the midst of all the divisiveness that surrounds us? I mean, we know that disunity grieves the Holy Spirit, driving away the blessing that would be ours otherwise, robbing us of God's power, destroying our witness. Matyer goes on to say, if we want the blessing, look to the unity. The blessing is heavenly and miraculous. Only the Lord can command it. According to his word, the blessing runs down to a particular stated place, the place where brethren come together and in unity. We should pray for it, cultivate it and practice it and refuse to do, say, or be anything that threatens it. And of course, he says, its first and primary focus is the local church to which you and I belong. I mean, here's the reality. If, you, if you're a Christian, you know this. We share a common faith. Not only that, we share a common destiny. The basis for our unity is greater than the oil of Aaron. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of the priestly 
rituals and laws has come in him. Jesus, our mediator, interceding for us at the Father's right hand. Us, plural, bound together in unity by the blood that covers us all. Like oil running down the beard of Aaron, like dew falling on the mountains of Zion. Jesus, Paul says, is the head of the church down which the fragrant oil of God's grace flows to the body, breaking down the sinful walls in our hearts, making us one in him. As I mentioned back in the spring, when it was starting to get a little ugly, starting, the devil would love nothing more than to destroy our song, the church's song, by fanning into flame the enslaving vices of the flesh that pit us against one another, which would be so incredibly out of step with where this story's headed, right? The quote I shared back then just is applicable now. Jonathan Edwards says, every soul there, meaning heaven, is as a note in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note and all together blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. Psalm 133 invites us to step onto the stage and practice for that beautiful symphony now, to the glory of God now. As we, Ephesians 4, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's nothing more encouraging to me than to know that Jesus prayed to the Father that it would be so. John 17, 21, as a part of Jesus's high priestly prayer, he prayed, Father, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and it's the doctrine of the Trinity. And Jesus is praying that we would be raptured into that and it would create a sort of unity among God's people, representing his church. He says that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's something evangelistic about it, apologetic about it, about Christian unity, that people will know that we are Jesus's disciples by the love that we have for one another, John 13, 35. So my prayer is simple this morning. Very simple. It's that we would know the sweetness of unity, like the anointing oil of the priesthood with its cinnamon and sweet cane, and that we would know the refreshment of unity, like the morning dew that falls on the ground, bringing forth abundant life, a flourishing and a fragrance that the world would not be able to ignore as she breathes in the church. It happens as we as we soak in the beautiful truth of the gospel, running back over and over again to the gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel to ourselves and each other, because it's that gospel of Jesus Christ that binds us together under the one and same blood, God's redemptive grace flowing down. In a moment, we, we get to do a little bit of what the psalmist is describing. We've, we come together into the presence of the Lord. We no longer have to to go to a particular city, to a particular temple. Rather, we can come together in spaces like these. You are a representation of the temple. The Holy Spirit indwells you if you're a Christian. We come into the presence of the heavenly Zion before our priest king, Jesus Christ, as we worship together. I mean, even the fact that multiple voices will sing just a moment from now is an expression of the heartbeat of Psalm 133. 
And so I pray that we would enjoy that moment. Listen to the voices around you that you've been surrounded by forever family. Soak that in as we worship the living God together through our song. We also have an opportunity to receive of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal's for you. If you missed it on the way in, you can go to the back table up against that back wall. There are communion cups. You're welcome to go grab one of those between now and the end of the service. Uh, We take the, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. You're welcome to do that at any point over the course of these last two songs. We wanna give space for you to uh, lean into and engage with the Lord in that. I just encourage you as you, as you take communion this morning to acknowledge that, that, that that means of God's grace, that symbol of his broken body and shed blood, we're all partaking of the same means because it's the one and same broken body and shed blood that binds every follower of Jesus together into this forever family.